James chapter 1, our series in sin and judgment. Now we're at chapter 1 of the book of James. Let's read from chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, 
not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Amen. We've come now to the book of James. Why is it that we began this series in the New Testament to see what the New Testament has to say about sin and judgment? The reason was that most people think that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. Who he is, his identity is different in the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. Not only that, they think that the God of the Old Testament has different attributes, different characteristics, different virtues. Or actually, they believe those virtues are vices. The God of the Old Testament, they say, is wrathful. He's angry. He punishes. He threatens judgment. He doesn't have any mercy or very little mercy and compassion. He does not display his grace and love, not in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, that's all God is. In the New Testament, he is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they say, not in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's love and grace, but not in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God had high expectations for one's conduct or his character. But in the New Testament, everything is open. It's free. There's freedom. There's liberty. There's grace. You can live as you please. Sin doesn't matter. There is no sin because Jesus died for our sins. So there's no sin with which we must struggle or overcome. There's no sin. No sin that we have to handle because Jesus died for our sins. So they say. But is that really what is in the New Testament? We have seen from the beginning of this series in the book of Matthew, all the way through the book of Hebrews, that that is not the case at all. And any honest, simple reading of the passages of the New Testament will show that what we have been saying is true. We have the same God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We have a God of love in the Old Testament. We have a God of love in the New Testament. We have a God of wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. We also have a God of wrath and judgment in the New Testament. We have a God who punishes sinners, unrepentant sinners in the Old Testament. And we also have a God who judges or punishes unrepentant sinners in the New Testament. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. There is one God, one way of salvation in Jesus Christ. We must believe in Him. And true faith in Him will be demonstrated by the fruit of our life the way we live. If we claim his name, then we should live according to his name, not contrary to it, because those who are contrary are following evil, following sin, following their carnal nature, following the world, following the devil. That's the way of the New Testament also. 
James, he is known to be a straight shooter. Many people consult him, but they distort him because they don't properly apply what he is saying. He said in our chapter, chapter 1, 19 to 22, and all the way to 25, he said that we must not be merely hearers of the word who delude themselves, but doers. But where are the people who actually do what he says? They are very hard to find. Now, some background on James. This James... We say the New Testament was written by the apostles. Well, James was one of the apostles, but not one of the 12 apostles. Just like the apostle Paul was not one of the 12 apostles, but a true apostle, James, this James was also a true apostle. He was the brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not cousin brother, not distant relative brother, but actual in the nuclear family, the brother of Jesus Christ. He became a a major leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he was reputed. He was one who wrote, he was the one who wrote this letter. There's another James, common name James, in the New Testament, and that is James and John, the sons of Zebedee. The reason they are called James and John, the sons of Zebedee, has to do with distinguishing them from other James, like this James, the brother of our Lord, and the other John. There's a John the Baptist. There's John the disciple, one of the twelve, and he wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. But John the Baptist is also in the New Testament. Why is he designated that way, even in the New Testament? So we can make a distinction between John the Baptist and John, the apostle or the disciple of Christ. The same way with James. James, this James is the brother of our Lord. Now let's seek to show that and prove that so that we see that we have authority and reliability with what we are reading and studying. Because there are scholars, skeptical scholars, liberal scholars, And most of the time, liberal and scholar does not go together because they don't practice true scholarship. But they say that James and other parts of the Bible are not to be in the New Testament, and they are not reliable, not written by eyewitnesses, so on and so forth. They say things like that, but we'll seek here from the internal evidence, we'll seek to disprove them. In order to do that, keep your place in James chapter 1, And first, turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, at the end of the chapter, we have a brief description of Jesus' family. Matthew 13, 53. 13, 53. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. 13.53, and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? 
Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. It says in verse 55 that his brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. This James is the same James as the book of James. And he is likely the second born, and likely they are mentioning these names in birth order. He's likely that. And also notice Jesus had two sisters, at least. At least two sisters. They are not named, but verse 56 says, and his sisters. Also for clarification, in verse 55, the Judas of verse 55 is not Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is often known as Judas Iscariot to distinguish him from this Judas, the brother of Jesus. Actually, this Judas, the brother of Jesus, is the Jude of the book of Jude. He is the Jude of the book of Jude. The name Judah in Greek becomes Judas, but it's the name Judah, like the, the son of Jacob and the tribe of Judah. But here it's spelled with the S instead of the H at the end. So this James is James from our book of James. This Judas is the same Jude as the book of Jude. Now go to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, verse 1. Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. <clears throat> we have a, a parallel here, a parallel account. And the reason we should note the parallel is we have two witnesses, contemporaries, writing the same facts. Two witnesses, Matthew and Mark, writing the same. Mark 6, verse 1. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the village's teaching. Now let's go to the book of John. The book of John, chapter 7. Book of John, chapter 7. And why is this necessary? Because we're going to see that during the ministry of Christ, at least for the most part during the ministry of Christ, his brothers did not believe. John 7 Verses 1 to 9. John 7, verse 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not 
yet at hand. But your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. His brothers do not believe at this point, but that's not the end. Now go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. At this point, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended into heaven. And he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So, waiting, while waiting, this is what we read. Acts chapter 1 Acts chapter 1 and verses 12 to 14. Acts 1, 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this point, his brothers were converted, which would include James and Jude. They were converted by this point, waiting and praying for the day of Pentecost. Let's continue to chapter 12, Acts 12. Acts chapter 12. We read verses 1 and 2 in order to make a distinction. Acts 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Acts 12 James, the brother of John, was put to death. Remember, these two, James and John, are the sons of Zebedee. This James was prematurely killed. But we're going to see that there is still a James in Jerusalem. And that is 12, verse 17. 12, 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Because James, the brother of John, was put to death, there is no other significant James. And he says here, this is Peter telling the church, Report these things to James and the brethren. And this James is the Lord's brother. Let's continue to chapter 15. When there was a controversy, chapter 15, Acts 15, when there was a controversy on what it takes to be saved, the apostles and the the elders and the brethren, they gathered in Jerusalem. This is known as the Council of Jerusalem. And in this council, they debated with each other But then there were two significant leaders in the Jerusalem church that stood up 
to put everything to rest. And who were they? First, it was Simeon or Peter, as it says in verses 6 to 11. You'll see in verse 7, it says, Peter stood up. And I say Simeon because James is going to speak up and James is going to refer to Peter as Simeon. Look now in verses 12 to 14, 12 to 14, 15, 12. And all the multitude kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He continues with his discourse, his explanation, and the whole church in Jerusalem, all those gathered, they agreed with Simon Peter, called Simeon here, and Peter, and James. Which James is this? This is James, the Lord's brother. Another place, one more in the book of Acts 21, Acts chapter 21, verse 18. Acts chapter 21, we'll read 17 and 18. 21, 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present in Jerusalem. Who is the main leader in Jerusalem? James, simply stated. And even Paul acknowledged it and went to him. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The apostles describing resurrection, and he's describing the people who saw the risen Lord. And it says in 15.7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This James is our James, the Lord's brother. We have been saying the Lord's brother. There is a phrase, actually. Turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. It's a biblical phrase. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 19, Galatians 1, 19. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. This is when he is in touch with those in Jerusalem. James, the Lord's brother. James is also mentioned in 2, verse 9, Galatians 2, 9. 2 verse 9, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And also in 2 verse 12, 2 12, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The men from James are coming from Jerusalem. And why from James? Because he is the main leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
And finally, we go to the book of Jude. Book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. <clears throat> How does Jude describe himself? Verse 1. <clears throat> Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He calls himself here a bondservant, or rather slave of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. Which James? The James in our study here, the Lord's brother. Jude calls himself the brother of James, like we read in Matthew and Mark. This letter was... written in order to deal with the conflicts, some of the more common conflicts that arise in local churches. Let's go back to James chapter 1 and verse 1. And we'll see some of that in our study of chapter 1. Again, in 1.1, James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. He identifies himself as a slave of God and a slave of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Jude did. He identifies himself like that. Do we? Or do we like the more warm and cuddly, cozy terms like child, friend. Yes, in a sense we are the children of God. Yes, we are friends of God. But why is it that we always only talk about that and never say that we are a slave of Christ? We ought to. They did. Why is it? Because our conception of God is corrupt. We think he's only a grandfather with a pocket full of candy for the grandchildren. That's the way we envision God. But what about him being our master and we his slaves? It would be a sin if we don't consider that and don't live that way. Not just consider it and believe it, say we believe it, but live that way. I will not do my will. I will always do God's will because I'm his slave. He's the master. A slave doesn't do his own will day to day. He does the will of his master. So, the same with us. It's addressed to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And the 12 tribes are most likely the literal 12 tribes. Some think that he's just speaking in in terms of spiritual Israel. But in this point, at this point in the first century, if this letter was written in AD 48 or 49, as scholars believe, Even some liberal scholars would say that. In AD 48 or 49, if that's when this was written, there were relatively very few Gentiles who were believers at that point. From AD 70 and onward, then there's a lot more Gentiles. But at this point, there are more Jews in the church than Gentiles. And it's more likely the case that among the 12 tribes of Israel, there were Believers, and he's writing to the Jewish believers from the various tribes of Israel. Remember, there was um, Anna the prophetess. She was from the tribe of Asher. 
We know that Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Those tribes existed. Still, they could identify their ancestry and know from which tribe they were. And that's likely what he's doing here, addressing the true Jews among the physical Jews in the 12 tribes. Verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First, he presents a paradox, an enigma, and actually something that is a loathsome comment if we're not thinking correctly. We would despise the thought if we were not thinking spiritually and biblically. And what would that thought be? Are you crazy, James, telling me to consider it all joy? That would be the way the flesh rises up against the Word of God, say, How can I be joyful with all of these trials, all of these problems, all of these afflictions? How can that be possible? That's what the flesh would say against the word of God, which is actually against God himself. It would be a sin for us to rise up against God and consider God to be crazy for telling us to consider it all joy. Yet that's what often happens. Also, we'll notice that he's fond of saying my brethren or my beloved brethren throughout this letter. Why? Because he's going to say many things that are stern, many things that are firm. He's not going to pull punches. He's going to tell it like it is. However, he is mitigating some of the sting of it by assuring us that he cares for us. The one who truly cares will tell the truth, but also seek to show the people hearing the truth that he truly does care for them and love them, and there is a way out of sin. That's why he says, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, various trials, various afflictions, various troubles, he says various He does have in mind one, at least one in this chapter, and that is the trial of not having enough means, not having enough food and clothing, because he compares the man who is poor and has faith to the rich man, and he does so in verse 10. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. In a sense, he is calling poverty or extreme poverty a trial, and it is. But that's not the only trouble or the only trial he's speaking of here. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about conflicts between members of the church. Chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 4, verse 1, is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members? Because we love our sin, our sin creates conflict within the church. So he's addressing that trial too. There are various kinds of trials. 
But when the trial occurs, we should consider it all joy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. He's teaching the same here. But we also should keep something in mind, verse 3. Knowing, knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. There is a good benefit. When faith is tested, it results in endurance. Don't we need, don't we want endurance? Or are we going to just run the race partially and then collapse? Run it partially and then backtrack and retreat? How are we going to run the race? If we're going to be successful, we need to complete the race, run that race with endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. If there is no testing of faith, then there's no endurance. That means it's a necessity. It's a necessity. That faith should be tested. Four. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Endurance has a perfect and complete result, lacking in nothing. That's the way we want it to be, as Jesus taught us. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We ought to strive for it. That when we see Christ face to face, we might then see him in confidence, not in shame, as we are progressing in holiness or sanctification in this life. To despise this would be to sin. This is the frame of mind we should have. Verses 5 to 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we lack wisdom, we should ask of God. How are we going to ask of God if we lack wisdom? Through prayer and the Word of God. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. That's a prayer. Open my eyes. Because often, because of our sins, our eyes are shut. They are blind. We don't see what God says. We don't see what God wants us to to know, to believe, to do. We don't do that. Therefore, we need our eyes, our spiritual eyes opened to know His will and then to do it. And when we read His word, then our eyes are opened. We should pray for our eyes to be opened. That's how we are going to learn. And when we do this, He gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
He is generous. He will not criticize us or reproach us, condemn us for asking for wisdom, heavenly, true wisdom. Now, this is going to be later in chapter 3 contrasted with earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. But in this case, when we're asking God through the Word of God and through a sincere prayer for the Word of God to instruct us, He will give generously and without reproach, and it will be given to Him. But there's a qualification. When we read the Word, hear the Word, study the Word, somebody tells us, somebody shows us, verse 6, but let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. We must ask in faith. If we don't have faith about what we read in the Bible, it's not going to benefit us. We're going to be wobbly. We're going to be like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. We're going to go back and forth, back and forth. We need to be stable. We need to be stable, not wobbly, and not waffling back and forth, back and forth. If we have true faith, confidence in the wisdom of the Word of God, then we should be resolved to believe it and do it. When we're not, he warns us, verse 7, let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He repeats this double-mindedness in chapter 4, verse 8, a warning not to be double-minded. Chapter 4 and verse 8. What is double-mindedness? It's oscillating. It's going back and forth. It's saying, well, what if it's not true? What if it's not right? What if, what if God doesn't really exist? What if he doesn't really love me? What if he's not really sovereign? What if heaven isn't real? What if Jesus Christ did not really die on the cross for my sins? What if he didn't rise from the dead? What if, what if? What if his promises to take care of me are not true? Everything is just accidental, evolutionary, haphazard. Nothing is deliberate with a good purpose. This is the way of the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We must have a fixed, firm faith in the promises of God. When we do so, it will give us the peace of God, the comfort of God, the wisdom of God, to do the will of God. 9 to 11. He compares the poor and the rich. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and his flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed." So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The brother of humble circumstances should glory in the fact that he 
has a place in heaven. He is going to be exalted and be reigning and ruling with Christ. The promise is already there. The assurance has already been given to us. That is our high position, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 says, We are seated with Christ by the oath of God, the promise of God. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is our high position. We're not experiencing it to the full at the moment, but that's what God has promised. But then on the other hand, the rich man should glory in his humiliation. That is, the rich man who is a believer ought to be humble, realizing his sins, realizing from what sins God has delivered him. That's how he keeps the right attitude. The poor, instead of coveting the possessions, being greedy about the possessions of the rich, he should consider his high position in heaven. The rich man, instead of boasting in his riches, should consider his sins and how God had delivered him from his sins and his humble position before God Almighty. This is what will keep peace and harmony among the rich and the poor in the church of Christ. And the rich should also consider that he's going to pass away quickly. Verses 10 and 11 say, verses 10 and 11, the riches of this world are going to pass away. They're going to be stolen, as Jesus said, or moths will come and destroy them, or rust will destroy them. Matthew six nineteen to 24. Jesus taught this, Matthew six nineteen to 24. The fact that these riches that we have in the world are not going to last forever. Contrary to the mummies of Egypt, you cannot take riches or your favorite objects with you to the grave. It's not the way it works. They'll all pass away and disappear. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man had everything he needed and wanted here. But when he died, he went to Hades and he was in agony, in torment, and it was too late. Luke 16 19 to 31, the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, a summary of the various trials. He's saying that when we persevere, we are blessed. Because once we are approved, that is, we have passed the test, Once we have passed the test, we will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The antidote to anxiety, depression, bewilderment with the things of this life is to look ahead to the life to come. The crown of life, the promises of the Lord, to those who love him. It's not for everyone, for those who love him. 13 to 15. 13 to 15 describe the source of evil. 
13 to 15, the source of evil. And then in 16 to 18, the source of good. The source of evil and the source of good. He compares and contrasts the two. 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. We cannot, according to verse 13, ever say, God is tempting me to do evil. God is tempting me to sin. If we were to say that, we would be sinning. He tells us that God cannot be himself tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is not the tempter, but Satan is the tempter, as he's called if we compare both Matthew 4, 1 to one and following to Luke 4, verses 1 and following, he is called the devil, Satan, and the tempter. The tempter. Satan is the tempter, but he's not talking about external temptation here. What temptation is he talking about here? Internal temptation. And in regards to internal temptation, he's not saying we can say and blame the devil. We should, we should blame ourselves. He says in 14 and 15, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We are carried away and enticed by our own lust. And lust in the scripture is any strong evil desire or any evil desire which overwhelms us and consumes us. Evil desire is lust. Sometimes it's in the context of sexual sin, but not always. In this case, he's speaking generally. And he says, he describes the process, verse 15. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He's using the analogy of birth. Conception, birth, Delivery, and ultimately, we produce death. Death comes from within, from conception, and then outwardly, we are producing death. It's all our fault. It's not God's fault. He's not even giving us leeway here to blame the devil. Though the devil is complicit in this, no doubt, the focus is, We need to overcome our own carnal nature. That's really where the issue is of sin and evil. Internally, the source of evil is our flesh. 
But what's the source of good? 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. First, he tells us not to be deceived. Many times, Scripture warns us not to be deceived. Let no one deceive you. Be on the alert. Because it's easy to be deceived. That's what Eve said. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Genesis 3.13 Deception is common. It's very, very common. But in this context, why is he saying do not be deceived? Because we have various philosophies and theologies who would get this wrong, who would get everything we've been saying wrong in this chapter, but in the immediate context, verses 13 to 15, they would get it wrong. If they get it wrong, if they misunderstand it, they are deceived. Also, what he's about to say about the source of good in 16 to 18, the source of good, what he's about to say, many people deny that too. They say that God is evil. The thought of God is evil. God does evil. God is malicious. He says, do not be deceived. Don't listen to this. My beloved brethren, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything good, everything perfect comes from heaven, from the Father. He is not capricious. He's not willy-nilly. He has no variation or shifting shadow. He is stable. He is firm. He has decreed his will, and his will will definitely be accomplished. He doesn't change his mind in the free will sense. He does not change his mind. He doesn't do anything like that. He is reliable. I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3, 6. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Malachi 3, 6, 1 Samuel 15, 29. Further, what is the good that he does? If, if we all have sin, we all have evil within us, we all have the old nature, the old man within us, how in the world are we going to be delivered from that? Being delivered from that would be the good. Verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. We are the first fruits among his creatures. How? By his will. It doesn't say his will cooperating with our will. It's not preaching synergism. It's preaching monergism. Only God's will brings us forth by the word of truth, the word of Christ, the Bible. Only God brings us forth. And because he's using primarily the, the analogy of birth, conception and birth, and secondarily of plants and harvest, first fruits, which child ever decided to be born? No child. No child ever decided to be born. He was born based on the will of his parents. 
In this case, he's saying, based on the will of God, you were brought forth. You didn't decide based on your decision, your free will, your good will. You cooperating with God. You do your part, God does his part. It's not that way. James says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. And by what means? What was the the means or the instrument he used? The word of truth. That means the word of truth is good because it comes from God who is good. And he uses the good word of God to produce a child of God. As we know, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce a child of God. That's how it works. 19 to 21. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. We know this, and it's good that we know this, my beloved brethren. But a friendly reminder in verse 19, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear. Don't always pipe up. Don't always blurt. Don't blurt at all. Blurting is, by definition, speaking prematurely, speaking rashly. Be slow to speak, quick to hear. Quick to hear what? The Word of God. Either quick to hear it as you read it, you study it yourself, or if someone else is communicating the Word of God to you, whether in a personal conversation or in a church service, in a Bible study, however it is communicated, be quick to hear that and slow to speak, whether silently in your own mind. I don't like that. I don't agree with that. That's not the God I worship. I don't worship that God. Those thoughts should not come to our minds or your own Wisdom should not come to your mind. It should always be the wisdom of the Word of God. Remember, James 3.15, he calls our wisdom earthly, natural, and demonic. Earthly, natural, demonic. We have nothing to say. Therefore, we should be slow to speak. And when we do speak, speak the Word of Christ. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. With whom would we be angry? He's not speaking necessarily just generally in relationships, though that should happen. He's speaking more contextually, specifically in the context of hearing the Word of God and not getting angry at the Word of God or the messenger who's presenting the Word of God. Like they used to get angry at the holy prophets of the Old Testament and angry at the apostles, and angry at Stephen, and so violently angry at Stephen that they stoned him to death, Acts chapter 7. That anger should not well up within us. When it does well up, it's sin. Don't get angry at the messenger of God when he's preaching the word of God. 
Don't be angry at God himself if you are directly just reading the Bible and you don't like what it says. Don't be angry at God. Repent of your sins. And know that your anger is coming from your flesh. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The clear example, common example, is Cain's anger. In 1 John 3, 11 to 17, 1 John 3, the apostle explains Cain's anger and it led to the murder of his own brother, righteous brother, Abel. Cain was wicked, Abel was righteous. Cain lacked faith, Abel had faith. Abel's faith produced a righteous offering to God. Cain's lack of faith produced an unacceptable offering to God. And when God did not receive it, this is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. In Genesis 4, Cain was angry that God did not receive favorably his offering. And instead of repenting, he murdered his own righteous brother, Abel. That's the kind of anger he's saying does not achieve the righteousness of God. 21. We still have our old man, our old nature, our natural self from Adam and Eve after they sinned, and most immediately from our own parents. We have the old nature within us still. We do have a new heart but we have the old nature. So what does the Christian life consist of? Verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. What are we supposed to be about? Continually removing filthiness and wickedness from our life and in humility... Notice that in humility, not in pride, but humility or humbleness, receive the word implanted. Humbly receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. When the word is first implanted within us and it causes us to be born again to a living hope. When the first planting of that word is within us, it produces fruit. This is the kind of fruit that is the opposite of filthiness and wickedness. Now a warning. He's told us about the power of the word. But now a warning in verses 22 to 25. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Now the warning is, it's not enough just to listen or to pretend you're listening. It's not enough just to listen. You cannot be merely listeners of it because the mere listener, hearer, is deluding himself. Well, I don't need to believe that. 
No, I don't need to do that. No, what he's saying about God isn't true. No, that verse of the Bible isn't correct. That's not the way God is. That's not the way I understood God to be. That's not how I was raised. That's not what my father told me. That's not what my grandfather told me. Well, he says we delude ourselves when we make excuses not to do what we know to be clearly written in the Word of God. And he describes the man who hears something because he briefly hears and then he goes on to do something else. And what he briefly heard is removed from his mind. Satan comes and takes it away. He's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. When we look at our face in the mirror in the morning, just to make sure that there's nothing dirty or no crumbs or stray anything on our face, and we walk out of the house, do we remember exactly how we look? Can we describe to people all of the marks on our face or the contours of our face? Can we do that? No, we forget. There are probably a few things, but we cannot do it perfectly because just like that, we forget. He's saying the same thing happens or should not happen with those who hear the word. Don't just hear it and do nothing. Hear it and be eager to do it. Verse 25, the perfect law. Look intently at the perfect law. Where is this perfect law contained? In Holy Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. That's where the perfect law is. He calls it perfect. Look at this, a New Testament verse, and there's many, that calls the New Testament, that calls what the Christian is expected to do, the perfect law law. For the antinomians, the lawless people, the licentious people who say, no, 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 no. If you say law, you are a Pharisee. If you say that we are supposed to control our life or regulate our life a a particular way, then you are a legalist. You believe in works salvation, works righteousness. But it says right here in verse 25, the perfect law. It doesn't say perfect uh, preference, perfect, perfect if you like it, take it or leave it. He doesn't mitigate it. He calls it a law, the perfect law. Also notice, he calls it the law of liberty. Liberty. That's why Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my load is light. To whom? To those who are heavy laden with a burden. The burden of what? The burden of sin. When we have the burden of sin on us, that is slavery to sin. But when we are in Christ, we are free. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8, 32 to 35. If the Son makes us free, we shall be free indeed. That's why when we hear what the Bible says of God's expectations of us. We don't cringe. We don't shrivel. We don't retreat. We don't go hide in a corner. But we say, with joy, Lord, this is what you say? Then I'll do it. I'm happy to do it. 
It's freedom. It's liberty, he calls it. The law of liberty and abides by it. It's a law of liberty, but we must do it, abide by it. That's true freedom. True freedom is not freedom to sin. True freedom is freedom to reject sin and to live according to the will of Christ. That's the way the Bible describes freedom, not the other way. For his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. His commandments are not burdensome. What he's telling us here in this first chapter and throughout this letter, nothing to the true believer is burdensome. Nothing is a heavy load. The believer says, okay, this is what it says. This is what I'll believe. This is what I'll do. Without mitigation. If we are this way, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. This is true blessing. People are groping and chasing after happiness in life. Pleasures. What they don't want is the pleasure of God. They don't want the happiness of God. They don't want the blessedness that comes from following God's will. In the pursuit of truth and righteousness, there is more joy in the true Christian than any joy or pleasure that the world offers. Twenty-six to twenty-seven. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. He's going to readdress this issue or sin of the tongue in chapter three, one to twelve. He's going to expand on this comment in chapter three, one to twelve. But at the moment, he says. If we think we're religious, if we think we're spiritual, we think we know Christ, we think we follow God, we think we're disciples of Christ, then what should we do? The first thing he says is, bridle the tongue. Bridle the tongue. He uses the word bridle. That word comes up again in chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. Because he's talking about an animal. Our tongue is like an animal that needs to be bridled, needs to be controlled, needs to be restrained. The tongue. Back to being slow to speak. The tongue. When we do not control the tongue and evil comes out of our tongue, lies, deception come out of our tongue. Wickedness comes out of our tongue. Filthiness comes out of our tongue. Whatever might be contrary to the holy and good word of God comes out of our tongue. We deceive our own heart and our religion is worthless. There we have another test. People say you cannot judge whether somebody else is a believer or an unbeliever. James does right here. The way the tongue is used. The way the tongue is used shows whether the man's religion is 
worthwhile or worthless. 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Good deeds, being kind and generous, looking out for those in distress among us, orphans and widows in their distress. Whoever is in a need, in distress, in a genuine urgency, a genuine emergency, then not only do we pray, write, uh, send scripture, but also we ask, we visit, we do something for them, do something practical for them. That's why he says to visit orphans and widows in their distress. He doesn't mean the rich, fat, and happy orphan. He doesn't need anything. He's talking about the genuine needs of the orphans and the widows. Not only that, but keeping ourselves unstained by the world. He's returning to holiness. Holiness, godliness, sanctification. The world is going to always, every day, bombard us with temptations. The world does that. But constantly, every day, we must say no. We must say, get behind me, Satan. We, might, we, we should say, no, friend, that is sin. I'm not going to do that with you. That's keeping ourselves unstained by the world. Hasn't James, the apostle, the Lord's brother, said a whole lot in this chapter about sin? What is sin? What's not sin? He certainly has. And he has things to say about judgment too. If we don't ask in faith, we won't get anything because God is judging us. So let us, therefore, Hear the word, believe the word, do the word. Trust that God is good and our flesh and the world are evil. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.